Good morning and welcome to the next step in our journey into the promised land with Joshua. It's been good to hear from John, from Jonathan, Bill and Nathan as we've progressed through the first few chapters of Joshua. And so far, everything's been going pretty well for him. Now, having been given a mighty victory over the impregnable Jericho, he sets his sights on Ai. And so we come to a bump in the road for Joshua. Let's now then read Joshua chapter 7 together. Uh, So please take your Bible or device and find the passage, and we'll read the whole passage. I'm going to read from the NIV. Joshua chapter 7. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, Along with all that belongs to him, he has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. 
Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bars, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all he had to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring, tr will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Acher ever since. Let's just pause and pray together, shall we? Our God, we come before you this morning as we come into your word again. We ask, loving Father, that you would speak to us through its page, we pray. You would bring to us, Lord, the light of your life and the, the truth of your person. That, Lord, you might cut right deep into our being. That, Lord, you would speak to us within our very hearts. That we might hear your words to us this morning as we come to this very difficult passage and find ourselves in the midst of a traumatic situation in the life of your people. So come and bring your peace and bring your presence and bring insight from your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To set the scene for Joshua's next battle, I think it's important to, to go back for a moment to Joshua chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, where just before the fall of Jericho, near the city, he meets a man with a drawn sword in his hand. When Joshua asks him, are you for us or for our enemies? The man answers, neither. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua immediately falls face down in reverence and asks if he has a message for him. To which the man's only reply is, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. This is just like Moses' experience of encountering God in the burning bush. Hence the widely accepted assumption that in this man we see a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus. There is a spiritual dynamic that pervades Joshua's role as a military leader. And we see this being further developed in this brief conversation, but for a fuller understanding of what brought him to this point in God's overall plan for his people, we need to go back to Abraham. Genesis, 13 verse, Genesis 11 verse 31 tells us that Abraham's father Terah took his family and set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. One commentator suggests that the moon god was worshipped at both Ur and Haran. 
And since Terah, whose name probably means moon worshiper, was an idolater, he probably felt at home in either place. Biblical scholars believe that the name Jericho originates in the Canaanite word for moon, or the name of the lunar deity for whom the city was an early center of worship. If so, in this victory, God was destroying not only Canaanite cities, but also Canaanite religion. Therefore, Joshua's destruction of Jericho is part of God's much broader judgment on sin. I find this helps me understand the violent nature of this part of the history of God's people and his use of their military prowess to judge sin. So here we see Joshua being instructed and directed by the commander of the army of the Lord as he prepares to attack, to attack Jericho. In chapter 6, we noted that God said, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, even before battle commenced. So victory was already assured. Before we come to chapter 7, it's important to note in chapter 6 the clear instructions given to the people as they prepared to attack Jericho. Joshua 6, verse 17, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Notice the instruction, the city and all that is in it is to be devoted to the Lord. That means total and complete destruction. But then here comes the warning, verses 18 and 19, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Here, the items that will not burn, items that is everything made of silver, gold, bronze, and iron, belong to God and are to be placed in his treasury. Do you know, it's very important for us to notice and to understand the detail of God's command. What needs to be done and what needs to be avoided is clearly spelled out in these verses. Joshua said, keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. The warning is clear. If you take any of the devoted things, you will bring about your own destruction. But then Joshua goes on to describe how the result of any sin they may commit a result of any sin they commit by taking any of these items will be felt much wider than that. For he goes on to say, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. So it's not just you that you have to consider. You've also to consider the impact of your sin on the rest of God's people. Sin as defined in the Bible means to miss the mark. The mark in this case is the standard of perfection established by God. Disobedience toward God is clearly sin, for when we disobey God, we're saying that we know better than him and will do things our way rather than his. Sin in whatever form has a destructive way of percolating through relationships and families. And this is what God is warning his people about in these instructions from Joshua. Sin is serious business. There is no messing with God's commands. So with this as a backdrop, we come to Joshua chapter 7 and Achan's sin. The NIV Study Bible makes this interesting comment. 
the tragic story of Achan, which stands in sharp contrast to the story of Rahab. In the earlier event, a Canaanite prostitute, because of her courageous allegiance to Israel and her acknowledgement of the Lord, was spared and received into Israel. She abandoned Canaan and its gods on account of the Lord and Israel, and so received Canaan back. In the present event, an Israelite, because of his disloyalty to the Lord and Israel, is executed as the Canaanites were. He stole the riches of Canaan from the Lord and so lost his inheritance in the promised land. This is also a story of how one man's, adver one man's sin adversely affected the entire nation. So this brings us to the theme for this morning. What happens when we fall? It sounds so innocuous, doesn't it? What happens when we fall? As if we fell over and quickly got up, dusted ourselves down and continued our walk. In this context, we could view our fall as inconsequential, just a small blip in an otherwise untarnished record, just a small white lie. After all, everyone does it. And in the context of this story, the people of Israel could have argued their case, for this was the fruit of one man's disobedience, the leader of one family in the hundreds of thousands of people in the nation of Israel. So I'd like to suggest we look at our theme in three statements. First of all, Israel faced a desperate situation. Secondly, Joshua engaged in a distressing self-searching. And thirdly, God gave a drastic solution. Or we could say that when we fall, we sin. And firstly, sin leads us into a desperate situation. Sin requires a distressing self-searching. And sin can only be dealt with by a drastic solution. So firstly, Israel faced a desperate situation. Chapter 7 opens by cutting straight to the chase. But the Israelites were unfaithful. Unfaithfulness lay at the heart of Israel's sin, and Achan's sin in particular. For the passage goes on to point out, to point the finger of blame directly at Achan, who took some of the, vo the devoted things with the result that the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Throughout this account, as often in the Old Testament, Israel is seen as a corporate unity in covenant with and in service of the Lord. Thus, even in the acts of one, Achan, or a few, the 3,000 defeated at Ai, all Israel is involved. The resulting experience of Achan's sin was so alarming to the people that years later, when the land had been subdued, and divided among the tribes of Israel, Joshua permitted the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to return to their allotted homes across the Jordan. Before doing so, they decided to build an imposing altar on the border of Canaan near the Jordan. When the rest of the people saw this, civil war nearly broke, broke out because the rest of the people thought these two and a half tribes had built an altar for themselves rather than the altar of the Lord their God. And they said, Joshua 22, verse 20, when Achan was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. In other words, there was a recognition that sin affects more than just the sinner. It damages other lives too. Happily in this instance, there was a, mis this, there was a misunderstanding which was quickly cleared up, so unity and peace was easily restored. 
So what actually was Achan's sin? Well, there are two aspects to the answer here. Firstly, Achan's answer, which helps us understand the progression of sin. Joshua 7:21. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. Achan saw something among the plunder that caught his eye. If he had heeded God's warning, he would not have been tempted. For God had said, keep away from the devoted things. But how, you might ask, could he possibly keep away? He was part of the invading army, and everything around him that he could see, touch, or smell was to be wholly devoted to God. The difference here is that Achan allowed his eyes to dwell on this beautiful robe from Babylonia, possibly a high-value item, certainly one to be prized, and after all, it was just going to be burned up anyway. Let's freeze frame for a moment as Achan looks at this robe. And cast your mind back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent tempted Eve to eat the fruit that was forbidden. He started by questioning God's word. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What did God actually say to Adam? Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You see, God spoke to Adam, but the serpent went to Eve and asked her about a conversation that had taken place before she was even created. So in some respects, it's hardly surprising that her reply included this misquote, Genesis 3, verse 3. God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So perhaps the misquote gave the serpent the opportunity to make his direct challenge to God's word in verses 4 and 5. You will not certainly die, he said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I believe the same temptation voiced by the serpent in the Garden of Eden echoed through Achan's mind at that moment. Did God really say like the rest of the people, Achan heard Joshua's instructions and clear command that every person and everything was to be totally devoted to God in destruction. Yet here he is looking at this beautiful robe. And there was a pile of silver coins just next to that bar of gold. How wealthy could he be with all that? Back to Eve in the garden for a moment. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining knowledge, she took some and ate it. It's the same situation. She saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some. Achan saw that the robe was beautiful and along with the silver and gold, it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wealth. What did he say in verse 21? I coveted them and I took them. In that moment, Satan is feeding Achan the same thoughts he fed Eve thousands of years before, and the same thoughts he still feeds us today. Temptation is very real. God said no, and we're thinking, I like it. It looks so good, and it could be so useful. But Achan's thoughts 
led to actions that had consequences way beyond his worst nightmares. God understands the struggles we face in temptation. That's why he has made a way for us to overcome it. God's word to the believer who faces temptation is found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. But yielding to temptation is sin. God does not promise that we will not be tempted. On the contrary, he expects that we will be tempted. For he says, when you are tempted. However, he does promise to give us a way out. The enablement to resist the temptation or to endure the trial without falling. But the events of Joshua 7 beg the question, was Achan the only one who fell here? Maybe we need to look higher up the chain of command. We could ask, was Joshua right to make plans without asking God? Time and time again in Scripture, we read that God's people asked him what to do in specific situations. This is especially true in the Old Testament where kings would ask God before going into battle. We see this, for instance, in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3. When faced with a huge army that threatened to destroy him, we read, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. But here we don't read of Joshua inquiring of the Lord. Perhaps Joshua was relying on his previous conversation with the commander of the army of the Lord that we referred to earlier. Perhaps he felt he did pretty well with Jericho, and Ai was a much smaller and less defended city. Maybe there's a lesson for us here. We need, I believe, to be careful never to be satisfied with an old testimony or the memory of a close relationship with God. We must always seek to keep our relationship with him current, to keep close to him, to seek him daily as our guide, to follow his counsel closely. Had Joshua taken time to inquire of the Lord, who knows what the outcome may have been? Perhaps Achan could have been exposed before any battle plans were drawn up against Ai, and things could have been very different. We don't know. It's speculation. But at no point are we told that Joshua inquired of the Lord. Surely this should have been an important part of his planning. However, in God's providence, the battle plans were made, and a small force of 3,000 men were sent to capture Ai. But they were routed, and about 36 were killed. What was the desperate situation that Achan's sin had led the people into? Well, it presented as a bitter defeat in battle. However, the root was that God withdrew his presence from his people. Notice how seriously Moses took it when God removed his presence. After the report by the 12 spies sent into Canaan, only Joshua and Caleb proved to be, fruitful, to be faithful. The rest were struck down and died of a plague from the Lord. But the people thought they had dealt with their sin. And, determined to proceed in battle, they set off. But Moses said this to them in Numbers 14, verses 41 and 42. Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. 
In Exodus 33, verse 15, Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Of all things, this is the most desperate situation any of us could find ourselves in. When God removes himself from us. Do you know this reminds me of a description of hell? Notice what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's hell. The place of everlasting destruction, a place where the, where the condemned will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. That's the first aspect in answer to the question, what was, what actually was Achan's sin? Achan's answer helps us understand the progression and the result of sin. The second answer in as, uh, aspect in answer to the question, what was Achan's sin, is simply God's answer. We see this in verse 11. But before we look at this, let's move on to the second statement relating to today's theme. First, we saw Israel faced a desperate situation, as a result of which we see, secondly, Joshua engaged in a distressing self-searching. When people in biblical times were distressed, they tore their clothes and put, put dust or ashes on their heads. Here, Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening, and the elders did the same. Why? Because something had gone terribly wrong. Their army had been routed, and the hearts of the people melted in fear. At such an early stage in their military campaign against the Canaanites, this was indeed distressing. Joshua cried out to the Lord in a similar way to the Israelites, who complained in Numbers chapter 20, verse 5, by saying, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Joshua also expresses his anxiety that the Canaanites would now judge that Israel and its God were not invincible, and they would pour out of their fortified cities and descend on Israel in the Jordan Valley. Joshua also pleads, as Moses had, that God's honor in the eyes of all the world was at stake in the fortunes of his people. Something was deeply wrong. Now Joshua, as leader, concerned for his people and the standing of the great name of God, was pouring his heart out to God. When things go wrong, it's right to search our hearts. Psalm 139, verses 23-24, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 26, verse 2, Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. When our relationship with God goes wrong, it is distressing. When we discover we're a sinner and what it costs God to deal with our sin, it is distressing. That Jesus should die in my place, not for any sin he committed, but for every sin I committed. It is distressing. So when things go wrong, it's important to engage in some self-searching, which can be distressing. As it turned out, there was sin, but it wasn't Joshua's sin, which brings us to verse 11, God's answer to Joshua and his assessment 
of Achan's sin. What does he say? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. Again, all Israel is implied in one man's sin. The significant words here are sinned, violated, stolen, and lied. In God's eyes, it's simple. He set the standard. If you like, and Israel missed the mark. They disobeyed him. They stole from him and they lied to him. The robe, the silver, and the gold weren't Achan's to take. They belonged to God. So in taking them, he stole from God. And because of this, God explained, that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. Do you know, I have it in my heart to feel a measure of sorrow for Achan. Sadly, his name didn't help him, for it sounded much like Achar, meaning trouble. Perhaps he felt he couldn't get into any more trouble, so he took whatever he wanted and hoped he'd get away with it. So what happens when we fall? Achan hadn't learned to withstand temptation, but as we'll now see, God took it very seriously. So to recap, firstly, Israel faced a desperate situation. Secondly, Joshua engaged in a distressing self-searching. And now, thirdly, God gave a drastic solution. God spells out his position in the second part of verse 12. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. The relationship is broken. God can't continue to be with his people while they harbor sin. The sin needs to be dealt with, which takes us to God's drastic solution. In verses 13 to 15, God outlines the steps Joshua is to take to expose the culprit. Verses 16 to 18 bring us to the point where Achan is revealed and Joshua gives him a fatherly encouragement to tell all, my son, give glory to the Lord. Tell me what you have done. Do you know, it's not easy to own up. We all need encouragement to do it, but it's important that we do. Not necessarily to share our deep, dark secrets with, with complete strangers, but tell God. Tell him about everything we've done. The drastic solution God gives Joshua is that Achan and all his family, livestock and everything he owns, is to be destroyed. Death is God's solution to sin in this whole tragic event. And you know, death is still God's solution, drastic solution to sin. Writing to the believers in Rome, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. In other words, when we sin, we are owed sin's wage, which is death. This is the righteous reward from God for sin. But in his grace and mercy, God looked on sinful man and decided to fulfill his righteous requirement for death by paying the price himself, by providing his own sacrificial lamb. In other words, in his wonderful plan to save us from our sin, he sent his son Jesus to be our sacrificial lamb. That's why when he saw Jesus, John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 29, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
In his teaching in Romans 5, Paul outlines the contrast between the trespass of sin and the gift of Jesus' righteousness. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, this confirms two things. First of all, every one, every one of us is a sinner. King David describes the depth of sin in his life like this in Psalm 51, verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So there's no escape. Our human nature is sinful at its root. And as a result, number two, death surely comes to all of us. In Paul's teaching here, he highlights the difference. For if by the trespass of the one man, i.e. Adam who first sinned, death reigned through that one man, how much more will, through those, will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of, the, of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? In other words, we have the hope of living, not dying, because of what Jesus Christ has done. For me, verse 19 puts it all in a nutshell. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So here's the deal. You and me, along with Achan and every other sinner that ever lived or will ever live, stand shoulder to shoulder as convicted sinners in the eyes of a holy God. We are aligned with the man of disobedience, Adam, and were due sin's wage, which is death. But through the amazing plan of God and his free gift of salvation, through the obedience of the one man, that is Jesus Christ, who was obedient to death, even death on the cross, we receive the invitation to be made legally righteous in God's sight. The pain and trauma of knowing we're sinners, seen in the words of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is neutralized and dispelled by the wonderful truth in the next verse, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. God's drastic solution to, to the sin problem is death. For Achan, there was no escape from God's wrath. But by God's grace and in his mercy, he focused all his wrath, which we deserved, onto his son Jesus on the cross. That's why when Jesus hung on the cross, the world went dark for three hours. God could not look at his son as he bore our sin. And in that moment, he lost that close relationship he had always enjoyed with his father, evidenced by his cry from the cross, Mark chapter 15, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then came another cry from Jesus on the cross, a cry of victory, John 19, it is finished. And immediately we're told, Mark 15, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Sinful man had now been made clean through the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God and was now given access to this holy God through the torn curtain, which is Jesus' broken body and shed blood. What happens when we fall? Number one, Israel faced a desperate situation. God removed himself from his people because of their sin. Do you feel far from God? Are you in a desperate situation? Has God removed himself from you because of something you've done 
or not done? Number two, Joshua engaged in a distressing self-searching. Do you need to do some serious self-searching? Is there sin in your life that you need to deal with? Perhaps God's highlighting a desperate situation in your life that you know needs to be dealt with. The starting place is to confess your sin to God. Then maybe you need to speak to someone. Maybe there's a broken relationship that you need to repair. Or you just know you've strayed far from God. Here's your opportunity to put that right. Number three, God gave a drastic solution. Death was the solution. And death is still the solution. But thanks be to God for he gave us his son who died in our place. So that we might be forgiven and receive his gift of peace with God and eternal life in his presence when we die. This is our wonderful hope today as we look at Joshua 7. Let's pray together now. Our loving and gracious God, we bow in your presence and thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that we've been able to look at the difficulty of this chapter and examine, Father, the the way that Achan fell and succumbed to temptation. And recognizing, Lord, the devastating result of when you remove your presence from your people. And Lord, if there is anyone here today listening and watching and recognizing within their own hearts something's gone drastically wrong, and maybe you're highlighting, Father, something in their life that needs to be dealt with, give them the courage. Give them the strength to come before you and bow once again at the cross and confess their sin. And Lord, we all recognize we're sinners in your sight. But we thank you as we come to you in, in, in faith and in, in confession of our sins that you forgive us our sins and you cleanse us from all unrighteousness and you make us one again with you. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Thank you for the hope we have as your people. And Lord, continue with us as we continue our journey through this book of Joshua as we discover your way with your people. Bless us, we pray this day, and go with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.